Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military and unmanned systems. Sam, uh, welcome back to the program. Uh, It's been too long of a break uh, since we've had you last on. And thanks so much for making time for us. I'm glad to be back. Today's show is brought to you by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII delivering the advantage. Uh, Sam, uh, again, welcome back. And let's start with an update on the war. There's considerable discussion whether uh, the Ukrainians are making really tangible progress uh, or whether they should be making more progress. I think it's a little bit gauche for um, uh, uh, critics to be throwing rocks at the guys who are actually doing the fighting. Uh, Ultimately, how are the Ukrainians doing, uh, given where we were a couple of weeks ago when we last spoke? Well, they are, in fact, making progress in the South. They are pushing Russians around the first contact line, but it is obviously very difficult going as has been recognized for weeks and months. In all of our updates, we probably uh, basically um, said the same thing over and over that the Russians have had time to dig in and prepare massive amount of fortifications. So this, this type of war usually advantages the defender. And Russians have learned a lot from their mistakes last year. They've learned a lot from Ukrainian successes. Obviously, Ukrainians are not standing still as well. So there's a lot of tactical fighting going on. But Ukrainians do appear to be pushing Russians in the southern region of the front. Um, And, uh, you know, this is uh, a war in which uh, there is constant uh, adaptation and and counteradaptation. Um, you know, some reports that we're getting, uh, for example, uh, that the Russians are jamming HIMARS. The Russians are good at jamming. They're also very adaptive and tuning. How How is the state of play, right? I mean, a couple of, like a year ago or even six months ago, we were talking about how unadaptive Russian forces were. Um, how adaptive are Russian forces proving now? Well, a lot of conversations about Russian quality of, of their fighting and uh, the quality of their force was reflective of their mistakes and losses last year, where they had to retreat and retrench. But obviously, while this force still has a lot of issues, it has, it has a lot of problems. It has a lot of personnel issues, obviously, uh, uh, logistics and uh, and weapons issues, but it is learning. It is adapting. And so it is using different systems to their advantage. They're trying to make things difficult for the Ukrainians. Obviously, electronic warfare and jamming is a significant part of this uh, new mechanism fielded against the Ukrainian military. Uh, Russians do uh, actually commit significantly to jamming all kinds of assets, almost to the point where a lot of Russian telegram bloggers are saying that 80% of their drone losses are because of friendly fires due to electronic warfare and 20% Mm -hmm. due to pilot error. So there's a lot of jamming going on at the front, um, and this affects, obviously, friendly forces. It affects Ukrainian forces as well. Uh, there are a lot of tactical ad- adaptations taking place um, on the ground with some Russian units performing better qualitatively using different types of UAVs in succession. But this is not a front-wide adaptation. So some pockets of the front are actually more successful, 
more adaptable, more flexible. Other pockets are not. It depends on the commander. It depends on the availability of resources. And it even depends on the quality and the quantity of volunteer assistance to these Russian forces with respect to some of the tactical elements that are most needed at the front. Um, uh, I want to uh, ask you about uh, personal changes really quickly because uh, Rustem uh, Umerov, uh, a Crimean Tatar, uh, is now uh, Ukraine's uh, new uh, defense ministry. Uh, he, uh, minister, he's replacing uh, Reznikov uh, because of some corruption scandals. I mean, uh, he's not implicated in it, but some scandals still within the defense ministry, and Zelensky decided to make a change. And we've also seen personnel changes on the Russian side, right? Surovikin uh, may, may still be alive, but he's certainly not in control of the war. Uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, we, we discussed that uh, issue uh, until it was resolved. Uh, and Wagner now moving under uh, more under GRU control. I mean, do these, what kind of impact do you expect these? changes on the in in leadership to be making on the battlefield well these changes are unlikely to make a significant impact on the ukrainian side there's still the same commitment to uh pushing russian forces out of the ukrainian territory and, and there's a commitment to uh, the counteroffensive that's going on on the russian side there isn't going to be much change with sort of out considering uh russian commitment to um maintaining pressure on the ukrainians and standing firm on their um, first and second contact lines all along the entire front. But usually the departure of high-profile leaders like Reznikov and others expose issues that have been sort of not covered or um, underreported right. before. And there were hints that, yes, Ukrainian military also faces significant issues, but those issues really weren't talked about in, in favor of the discussion of positive developments uh, along the Ukrainian um among the Ukrainian military and obviously in their force structure. And so now that Reznikov is out, there's obviously a lot of um, details that have emerged. Um, and obviously our listeners can read a lot about that. Right. I don't think we, we should spend a lot of time on it. But no. And the same on the Russian side. The death of Rigozhin, the, the departure of Surovikin usually kind of talks or rather speaks to uh, some of the issues and changes that uh, were prevalent while these men were around. But again, it doesn't change much on the Russian side, and it, it is unlikely to impact much um, of the Ukrainian commitment to their counteroffensive. There may be some changes in how certain technologies are acquired. There may be some um, changes in how Ukraine um, fields and tests certain technologies and systems. But at the same time, there isn't going to be a significant change, at least uh, for the next six to nine months. And uh, we're going to be uh, following it uh, blow by blow. So uh, no, no need to talk anymore about that. Let me ask you about the Elon Musk uh, situation. Uh, Walter Isaacson in his biography uh, of Elon Musk uh, tells the story about how Musk turned off Starlink uh, service to the Ukrainians, foiling a, a major uh, Ukrainian attack on the Black Sea fleet. Uh, you know, Musk saying he, he didn't want to be part of an escalation. But it does raise a whole number of questions about a commercial firm pulling the plug, literally, uh, as as was this case. You're also, you know, a student of warfare. What are some of the challenges something like this presents and and how, you know, how do you, how do you think that factors into this uh, this conflict, but also any other conflict going forward as, as sort of a military thinker from your standpoint? Well, Musk-related developments are truly unprecedented. There's never been a public private sector effort of such stature and scale that was so deeply involved 
in a military conflict. Usually, a lot of commercial enterprises, a lot of private sector enterprises were subsumed in a larger government effort during the war. And the best example are U.S. Uh, private sector automakers and manufacturers who were working with the U.S. government during World War II to mass manufacture a huge quantity of weapons and systems, right? We've all seen those photographs of um, assembly plans, which are like a mile long, right? Right. Uh, but uh, once again, those private sector efforts cooperated with and were actually, um, um, they were part of the larger government effort, but they weren't standing aside and they, they certainly didn't set their own agenda. So truly what's happening with Musk's um, involvement in Ukraine is unprecedented. And there hasn't really been a discussion about how such private sector efforts can, in, in fact, influence and impact warfare on such a scale. Ukraine does have a lot of assistance from Western private sector companies, especially when it comes to using different types of artificial intelligence technologies and machine learning technologies. This is public knowledge and has been covered widely by global media. Um, and uh, a lot of people wondered, I think, and myself included, what happened to those unmanned surface vessels last year that they simply washed ashore. And we probably all guessed that there was some kind of communication failure. We just didn't know that this was all this was all part of um, a decision made by one individual in one company. So again, uh, this is truly unprecedented, and I don't think we have the right language to even start to start talking about how a company like Starlink uh, that belongs to such a massive private conglomerate is impacting or how, how it influences the war and what we can do about it. We, meaning United States, the West, the government, uh, the experts, and so on. Uh, and so uh, obviously more will be uh, will be described in, in the biography when it's finally out right. and when we, we right. finally have, when we have a, a chance to read it, but uh, I don't have a good explanation of how to deal with such issues. Um, uh, but but this also this also speaks to the the complexity of of the war in Ukraine that there's a uh, a cooperation with and sometimes entangled sometimes um, an entanglement between the government effort, the military, the volunteer efforts, the private sector efforts, right. and sometimes the private sector efforts on the global scale. There's some of that on the Russian side, obviously, without the global part, but there's a lot of that happening on, on, on the Ukrainian side because so many international companies are helping Ukraine right now. Uh, it's going to be very interesting, especially to hear senior Air Force leadership talk about uh, this issue. I'm sure they're going to be asked about it uh, at uh, the Air Force Association uh, show. Uh, two uh, important questions, and we've got about three minutes uh, left. Uh, talk to us about the Drunitsa Russian drone jamboree. Right. So this is the second annual meetup organized by Russian volunteers that bring together different uh, volunteer efforts across Russia that assemble, manufacture, test, and deliver different types of drones, including FPV racing kamikaze drones to the front. Uh, a lot of uh, Russian small-scale and large-scale drone manufacturers were there. A lot of military experts uh, were there this time around. This second annual meetup was much more professional, much better organized than the first, um, even even down to the venue and, uh, and the speaking um, arrangements. The main point for this meetup was to discuss lessons learned from Ukraine, but also talk about the mass application of UAVs, the impending swarms, which are probably coming to the front, and means to deal with UAVs of all types and kinds. And so there were a lot of lectures. 
and uh, there were also um, a day and a half of tests and um, and trials of different UAV systems. The organizers talked about the impending and eventual and unavoidable dronification of war and robot and uh, robotization of war, in the sense that uh, using different types of unmanned and autonomous systems, including UAVs, is a way out of the positional impasse that both the Russians and the Ukrainians find them find themselves right now in the war in Ukraine. And a lot of these volunteer efforts, obviously. Um, spearheaded the uh, FPV revolution on the Russian side and thousands and thousands of these kamikaze drones were in fact delivered by volunteers and they're still delivered by volunteers and um, this uh, organizing group tried to find sort of a way out for all of these efforts to work better with the government and to be more successful sort of um, according to what they want to do with the Russian military. Uh, similar events are happening on the Ukrainian side. Some of the more high profile ones were described last year and this year because Ukraine is also working with their volunteer effort. But the Ukrainians, uh, especially the government and the military are much more successful and much more flexible in um, approaching their, their um, volunteers in the private sector and allowing volunteers in the private sector to work with the government directly. This is still a problem on the Russian side, and this right. is what the Dronitsa event tried to address. Um, let me ask you uh, about the crisis that's uh, brewing in the Caucasus uh, now almost uh, three years, uh, or actually exactly three years after uh, the uh, Azerbaijani uh, in, uh, attack on uh, Kharabakh, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, uh, along with uh, Turkish and Israeli uh, support and with Russia standing out of the way. Azerbaijan has massed forces uh, on the Armenian border to cut off the southern tip of the uh, country called Zangazur uh, to be able to uh, encircle and and starve it, as we're seeing uh, the case in uh, the enclave in Gharaba. Uh During the past several years, uh, the 25 or so mile border with Iran has been the only way to get uh, food, fuel and supplies in and out of Armenia. Iran has said that it would uh, fight to block the move. Uh, Turkey last week warned uh, Iran uh, that it would back Azerbaijan. Russia is mad at Armenia, especially because the U.S. Army, uh, some uh, U.S. Army forces trained in the country uh, recently. And after Russia's energy sanctions, Azeri oil and gas are in demand. So if you're sitting in Baku, you're thinking you might actually be able to get away with this. What's going on and what's at stake? Because this is what great power wars, you know, this is how great power wars start. Well, there's also Russian military base in Zangazur. And for a while, this was supposed to be a guarantor of Armenian security. Uh, but as you have just described, there are other interests afoot and there are other interests at play here. Uh, what's really alarming about this is that Iran is pulling up forces to the Azerbaijani border and threatening to get involved militarily if uh, there's a military action against Armenia. And Turkey just recently said that uh, they will get involved as well militarily if uh, Iran is involved um, against Azerbaijan and for Armenia. And the question is, is this all bluster? Is this really going to result in an outright military conflict? Because neither Turkey nor Iran need this right now. Neither country can actually afford this right now. In fact, Iran has been subject of, of uh, cross-border attacks and shelling by the Taliban in Afghanistan, and Iran has been standing still and hasn't really responded because Iran cannot afford to get involved in a military action against the Taliban. Iran probably cannot afford to get entangled in a war in the Caucasus as well. And uh, Turkish economy is weak as it is, and its currency as weak as it is. Turkey is trying to find a way out of its uh, 
out of its economic situation. It's uh, trying to uh, compensate for that geopolitically. And again, is everyone really going to go to war over this? Or is this going to be resolved diplomatically one way or another? Uh, Russia is not directly involved. It doesn't mean it isn't interested in a peaceful resolution. It is unlikely that Russia would stand by and lose Armenia to um, the uh, joint Azerbaijani and Turkish attack. Uh, obviously, there are other countries which would be affected, such as Georgia and the larger Black Sea region as well. So again, the question is, to what extent are these countries willing to go to war? And uh, how much are they willing to sacrifice just to prove a point? In this case, again, we're talking about larger supporters of um, of Armenia and Azerbaijan in, in basically in the roles of Russia, Turkey, and Iran. And that's kind of what I'm wondering right now. Uh, this is not the first time Iran or, or Turkey or Azerbaijan have pulled up uh, forces and weapons and systems to their respective borders. This is not the first time they launched major military exercises, which mimicked invasion and uh, defenses against such invasions. And it's not the first time Iran has threatened to do something about uh, the situation to help Armenia. But again, the point is, are they really going to go to war? So this is something that we're trying to observe right now. And this is what we're monitoring. Uh, absolutely uh, fascinating uh, to track. Do you think uh, Russia wanting to punish uh, Armenia for exercising with the U.S. Army, right? I mean, there's there there's a group in Yerevan that wants to, to shift alliances uh, uh, or security guarantors away from Russia to the United States. Many have said that this is a little bit of a fool's errand because geographically you are where you are. Um, is there is there anything to that? Because it was interesting uh, that given that uh, Prime Minister Pashinyan had been so critical of Putin, that Putin actually sat out the last war uh, as a very pointed punishment aimed at Yerevan. Well, we have to ask whether Russia can actually afford to lose Armenia as an ally, that is, lose officially uh, to um, the larger influence of, of Turkey and Azerbaijan and other countries. Can Russia actually afford to lose Armenia uh, and have the Caucasus region reshaped uh, with a war that would result in Azerbaijani-Turkish victory? And I think the answer is no, it is not, no matter how upset Russia may be. Uh, it is not willing to lose Armenia. After all, if you said that Putin set out the last war, that war involved an unrecognized region of Nagorno-Karabakh. It, it did not directly involve Armenia. And the unspoken rule was Azerbaijan doesn't attack Armenia. Azerbaijan fights in Nagorno-Karabakh, and be what may. Uh, this is now threatening Armenia's territorial integrity and the people directly. And it is unlikely that Russia would sit this one out. I mean, I would be very surprised if that happened. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us and already looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Marco. And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space is sponsoring our coverage of the Air Force Association's Air Space Cyber Conference and trade show. Joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, welcome back to the program. It wouldn't be Monday without you. It is. I always look forward to it, Vago. 
same uh, here. So first, uh, let's uh, start with some uh, macro themes, uh, right? Uh, you uh, wrote uh, about everything from where we are in the fiscal matter, which uh, as uh, Michael and I discussed on Friday's show, Michael Herson and I of American Defense International and I discussed on Friday's show, you know, it's like Groundhog Day at this point where every show is very, very similar in, in what it is that we ask. And unfortunately, you and I talk about that as well. And, and you see sort of a link between uh, what's happening uh, with the holds that Tommy Tuberville has and actually the sluggishness of the group. Walk us through this thesis. Definitely agree with a lot of what Michael had talked about on your Friday show. You know, the one thing that I would add, um, if you look at October, I think October 13th is the uh, the first date in, in October where military pay is due. Um, I, I think that's going to be a pretty <clears throat> flashing red light. Um, I, I'd be shocked if a federal shutdown went beyond that and you actually saw uh, active reserve people not get paid. Um, so I'm, again, I get the drama of this. I get the, you know, what it means from how people think about Congress and what Congress is capable of doing or not doing. But I, I, I think the drama of a shutdown will be fairly short-lived. And as I keep saying, I'm, I'm really more worried about continuing resolutions uh, stretching well into fiscal 2024, because that's when you really get the, the further budget cuts and <clears throat> the behavior out of uh, acquisition officials, I think, as they they deal with that uncertainty and trying to hoard the funds that they have on hand. Um, on the on the holds by Senator Tuberville, you know, again, you got guys pointed out really the kind of unprecedented um, appearance, the Wall Street, the Washington Post um, uh, essay, and then a CNN appearance um, with the the three service secretaries. I've got to believe, though, that this is also one of the factors that is an overhang on, on the defense sector. The U.S. defense stocks have not been performing well, at least the large, uh, the larger contractors. Um, you know, the fact that this has gone on as long as it has, and you now have senior military people saying um, this is this is dysfunctional. It's having an impact. Um, it's corrosive, and you know, I get it. Um, you know. Uh, there is a part of the GOP that is cheering uh, Senator Tuberville on and agrees with what he's doing. I think Democrats, though, are also willing to let this thing stew because they see it as a GOP problem. And frankly, it gives them a narrative that see what the GOP is doing to weaken national security. So but, but again, you know, the fact that it, this is going on as long as it has and there just doesn't appear to be a move to solve it. You know, that then plays through to if you can't resolve something like this, what does that right. really mean for the FY24 budget and where defense is going to fall out in that budget? Um, so these are all interlinked. And, you know, hopefully this has a happier ending than what we're currently looking at today. Uh, and uh, I should uh, point out that uh, Secretary uh, Kendall, the Air Force Secretary, also, uh, I think it was on Saturday, was on CNN, uh, as as well on Jim Acosta's uh, program, uh, talking about the implications. Um, let me uh, move to, uh, just so, sort of uh, really quickly, because we've got so much uh, stuff to cover, but I just wanted to quickly get your sense on, uh, you know, whether there was any update in your financial projection on, you know, any of this, whether on CR shutdown or anything else. Same. same. You know, the only little incremental tidbit was the military pay date. 
Byron, there's uh, so much I want to uh, get to, uh, including uh, your terrific note on what Poland needs, uh, given that the nation is in just sort of a generational modernization effort. Uh, and uh, BAE chief executive Charles uh, Woodburns, uh, you know, a, a very cerebral CEO uh, in his conversation at the Royal United Services Institute last week. But just really quickly on the technology refresh three uh, of the F-35, you know, we discussed this on uh, on yesterday's program as well. But sort of, you know, give us your sense, because, I mean, this is really sort of gumming up, you know, not only is this sort of 16 billion or so uh, uh, over budget, but it's also behind schedule and actually pushing back the, the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. military doesn't want any of the earlier model airplanes, right? I mean, so this is going to reduce production quantities. Anyway, give us kind of your your quick insight on I, that. Again, I, we I think, the other you know, it, it impacted Lockheed Martin's stock <clears throat> when uh, when they filed their 8K with the SEC disclosing this this uh, change in their delivery expectations. Um, but, you know, I, I guess maybe this is just a broader comment on defense in general, you know, Look, at the end of the day, these are pretty complex engineering and manufacturing problems. Um, I don't know how many lines of code, you know, are in uh, TR3, but, you know, it's it's been a general challenge and problem for the sector. Um, and I get it. You know, yes, you put a schedule out, you hope to achieve that schedule. But I, I still think this is going to be one of those timing issues. Um, yes, you know, for the analysts who cover Lockheed Martin, they probably took down their 2024 estimates, although, you know, without a lot of data to do that. <clears throat> um, Lockheed Martin was pretty clear that it really wasn't going to have much of an impact on 2023. I mean, they're still building the aircraft. It's just the final acceptance right. and delivery. So I I don't get too upset about it. I, I also just kind of step back and look at the uh, <clears throat> fact, you know, the F-35 has really kind of cleaned the deck of right. um, uh, the global fighter competitions. I mean, if you'd asked me, you know, five years ago, did I think Romania was going to be buying F-35s? I, I probably would have taken the other side of that bet and I would have been right. wrong. Um, so I don't. Is it a problem? Sure. Uh, I don't I don't deny it, but I also don't get too jumpy or too upset about it um, in the context of, of more broadly where that program is and the need for it. Um, you know, when I, I put a note out to our clients and, you know, I linked it back to a uh, Mitchell Institute's report that talked about, you know, just the need for um, that tech refresh three capability in the F-35 and how important it was. And I haven't heard anybody in the Air Force back away from that need. Uh, in, uh, indeed. indeed. Um, let's uh, go to uh, Poland uh, and its extraordinary uh, investment. Takeaways from your standpoint? Well, it's just, it, it was really just kind of for edification because I think, you know, there's snippets of news, but when you kind of step back and look at, you know, what's the current size of the Polish military, Compared to Germany, France, and the UK, you know what have they indicated they're going to buy? What have they contracted for? I mean, it's it's really pretty sweeping. Now it is going to take place over a number of years. You know, like like any number of co countries uh, building up their defense. Uh, maybe Poland is a little unique because I can't think of a whole lot of other countries. Um, Ukraine and Russia are the other two that come to mind. But but Ukraine is uh, that Poland is increasing the size of its military. You know, they, they want to get to around 250,000 um, personnel in the regular forces and then another 50,000 in territorial units. I've seen different dates on that, either 2030 or 2035. I, I'm going to opt with the 2035 number. But 
Um, you know, it, it's just, it, it is intriguing uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it's really given a boost to the South Korean defense industry. Um, I was not at MSPO in Poland last week. That was their major uh, international defense trade show that happens every every year around this time. Uh, you know, South Korea was kind of the, the spotlight uh, partner or, or country. And in a weird way, Vago, I think they're kind of kindred spirits. Um, both Poland and South Korea have been stuck between larger countries who have fought wars on their territory. And I think the fact that South Korea is transferring technology to Poland as well to help them build their industry, um, that's going to take a little bit longer. <clears throat> you know, Poland has been armored vehicles, uh, weapons, you know, light weapons, nothing, nothing I would say that's terribly sophisticated. But I think anytime you see a country start down this path of a major defense modernization, you know, they are going to be developing their own defense industry. And I think that's something to watch too. Uh, indeed. And uh, Charles uh, Woodburn's uh, comments at Rissi and why you found them particularly noteworthy. Well, he spoke um, September 7th uh, at an event held by Royal United Services Institute. Um, I think it was intriguing because he had just been to Ukraine uh, to Kiev uh, seven days before, and I guess announced kind of a framework agreement uh, to work with Ukraine to support Ukraine's armed forces. Um, he did make the point that BAE may have more equipment um, that's been donated by countries, by the United States, by by Britain and uh, and Sweden in particular, um, to Ukraine. And, you know, kind of the first step is to really help support that equipment that's been fielded by Ukraine. Um, but I think, you know, it's kind of like the Polish comment, you know, Ukraine is eventually going to have <clears throat> its own defense sector. Um, Charles had said that he he had known, uh, he found Ukraine very industrious um, in his experience when he worked with them, uh, when he was in the uh, oil and gas industry. And, so there's there's kind of an interesting relationship that's developing there. And I can't think of a lot of other CEOs uh, who have been to Kiev. I, I can't think of any American CEOs. And I think that that's telling as well, too. Um, I, I think, um, you know, BAE Systems is probably going to have a pretty good position here over the longer term. And I, and I thought it was utterly fascinating before we uh, go to taking a look at the week ahead uh, that, right, the vast overwhelming percentage of equipment that it, the Ukrainians are fighting with that are being donated by Western countries is BAE equipment. Yeah. Yeah. Bradley's, you know, they build a Bradley, the, the, uh, the 155 millimeter towed uh, howitzers, um, CV 90, uh, the challenger tanks are, there are a couple of those there. Um, but yeah, it's. And, and laws and laws and their role as the partner with yeah. Saab in building those. And Talos too. And then they have, um, well, Storm Shadow and uh, the APKW is also being used there. So it's a that's what we know about them. There may be other things we don't know about, but I I, I just think it was a it was an interesting event. I, I thought you know I flagged that because um, it, it's it, Charles said, and I would agree with him that you know maybe more so than other companies uh, in this sector, BAE really is global in kind of the way it approaches. The business, this notion of being multi-domestic. Um, you know, he emphasized they've traditionally worked uh, as, as partners on things like the Tornado and then the Eurofighter Typhoon program. You know, you can see this in the work they're doing in Australia. Um, 
you know the, the work that uh in the in their um naval vessel programs as well to what is it the type 21 vago right. uh, that, that they've been selling to australia uh, and canada the type 20 uh type 26 that sold type, to canada yeah. and to australia and then they're pushing uh the um uh, type 31 as as the uh export ship uh yeah. around uh around the world yeah, yeah. Um, so let me go ahead. let me let me quickly take you to the week ahead. Uh, we've got about a minute left. What are the what are the takeaways? What should the audience be paying attention to? It's it's a breathtakingly busy week. Um, everything from Air Force Association to DSEI. There's a defense trade show in Taipei this week. Taiwan, um, uh, Russ uh, Rumbaugh, uh, the Navy Comptroller, is speaking at Atlanta Council. And there are a bunch of events on Russia at the think tanks in Washington D.C. Um, CSIS has a, a couple of different events, uh, including one, I think, on missile defense and kind of the networks uh, supporting that. Um, Bill LaPlante uh, is speaking at um, at the Center for New American Security on, on Friday. And uh, New America, Arizona State is also doing a security conference. So, um, you know, my list is probably about a page. Uh, it's about two-thirds of a page long in, in all the events are taking place this week. And uh, very quickly, what is your expectation of what, you, what we're going to be hearing today at AFA? I think the most interesting thing is to see what kind of tone Secretary Kendall says about um, his new priorities, uh, really kind of getting back to the posture of the Air Force. Um, you know, the emphasis that he's placed, he's, he said, you know, on a modernization. So what does this all mean? What are the new initiatives? How is this going to play through? Um, the, the positioning around uh, collaborative combat aircraft, um, it's unfortunate, I should say unfortunate, but I I, I was hoping that um, there'd be more on the blended wing body, but uh, the company that received that contract award, I don't think is exhibiting the show, but that's not to say it will be talked about. So, and, and then I think the other part is just, well, how are people thinking about this FY24 budget? How is it going to come together? What's the risk of their plans and programs? Um, as I said, you know, you can look at the budget submission, but that's that's a starting point, And we are nowhere close to the end point for this budget. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. And we'll see you around the show. Will do, Bago. Thank you. And thanks very much to all of you for tuning in today. And a very special thanks to HII for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Join us tomorrow for our strategy series conversation sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems with Dr. Brendan Mulvaney, the director of the U.S. Air Force's China Aerospace Studies Institute at Air University at Maxwell Air Force Base uh, in Alabama.